And that would be Caleb and Jared, who are incredibly talented and give to the Lord through that. And uh, I just want to say thank you for all you do. They are a couple of people who remind me on a weekly basis of how little talent I have. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Numbers chapter 20. Numbers chapter 20, it will also be on the screen behind me. And as we look at Numbers 20, would you stand please out of respect for the reading of God's word. Hear the word of God. In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin, and they stayed at Kadesh. There, Miriam died and was buried. Now there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into the wilderness that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of the meeting and fell face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, Take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water, and you will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust me enough to honor me as holy, in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. These were the waters of Meribah, where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord and where he was proved holy among them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, can I tell you right now that if it were up to me, there's a number of passages of scripture that would not have been included. And this is one of them. This is one of those passages where the first time I read it, I'm reading along and everything's going just the way I kind of expect it to, and then it gets to the point where God says, Moses, you will not be able to enter the promised land because of what you have done. And I stopped and I thought, what did I just miss? So I went back and I read it again. And still, I thought I, I must have missed something. This was a passage that no matter how many times I looked at it, I could not understand really what was going on. And if there was something that Moses did wrong, I couldn't figure it out. And if he did do something wrong, I couldn't understand why God's punishment towards him was as harsh as it was. And particularly when you consider who it is we're talking about. This is Moses, a man who I could make the argument is, aside from the Savior, he is the most influential person in human history. I mean, there's really no question about that. When you look at the influence that Moses has had over the years, there's no one else who comes even close. His influence upon religion, upon the law, upon government, political science, just about any area of human interest, Moses has his fingerprints upon it. And this is a man who, at the age of 80, was called upon by God to go before the most powerful man in the world 
and say, Thus saith the Lord, let my people go. Now, that took more than daring. That took a degree of courage and faith that I doubt that any of us will ever be called upon to exhibit. And what's interesting is that Moses had a quality there that very few great leaders, powerful leaders, international leaders have. Because the Bible tells us that Moses was the meekest of men. And you can see that meekness in the way that he not only led the people of Israel for 40 years, but he suffered them. He put up with all sorts of indignities and insults and trouble, the likes of which I would not relish, nor would you. And let me give you just, just a few examples here so that we know what we're talking about. You'll remember that it was in Exodus 14 that Moses leads the people of Israel out of Egypt with Pharaoh's armies right on his heels. And they get to the promise, excuse me, they get to the Red Sea. And God works through Moses to part the waters of the Red Sea so that they can get to the other side. And then once they are safely to the other side, God causes the waters to come crashing down and it wipes out the Egyptian armies. That's chapter 14 of Exodus. The very next chapter, you have the people of Israel singing praises to God about how the horse and the rider have been cast into the sea and they are loudly proclaiming how great, how powerful, and how saving God is. That's chapter 15. The very next chapter, they turn towards the wilderness and they see what's in front of them and they start to grumble and complain and bellyache and say, if only we had died in Egypt. Why on earth did we come out here? Oh, in Egypt, we may have been slaves. We may have been in, hard, in hardship. We may have been treated badly, but at least Pharaoh knew how to set a good table. And they're complaining. And Moses says, what are you complaining about? We're out here because this is where God has led us. If you've got a problem, you need to talk to God about it. He's the one who just delivered us. And so Moses goes before the Lord, prays for the people, and God brings manna down from heaven miraculously to feed the people, and that's the way that they are fed for the next 40 years. Now, that's chapter 16. You get to chapter 17, they arrive at a place called Rephidim, and there they run out of water, and the people start to bellyache and moan and complain again. And God works through Moses to bring water out of a rock that day. At this time, Moses does it in such a way that God is not unhappy with him. Now, from there, they go on to Mount Sinai. And it's at Mount Sinai that God calls Moses up to the mountain and delivers to him the Ten Commandments, the, the tables of the law. But while he is doing this, God says to Moses, Moses, hurry up, go back down to the camp. The people, they are rebelling. They are lusting after manifestations of the divine. They have built themselves an idol. And Moses goes down, and sure enough, he finds that the people have built themselves a golden calf. And God says, Moses, step to one side. I'm going to wipe out the whole rebellious lot of them, and I'm going to start over with you. And you will be the father of the faithful. And what does Moses do? He throws himself down before God and says, Oh, Lord, please don't. You don't want to do that. I mean, if you do, that would be a reflection on you. People will say from this point forward that you were able to draw them out of Egypt, but you couldn't keep them alive in the wilderness. Will you please reconsider? And God says, Since you asked me, I will reconsider. And so the people have just been spared the wrath of God because of the intercession of Moses. Now, to get to the next part of this, we have to skip ahead to Numbers 11, because that's when they leave Sinai. 
and having just been saved from the wrath of God by their leader, Moses, the people look out over the wilderness, and what do they do? They start to fuss and complain and grumble and say, why, Moses, did you lead us out to this desolate place? What were you thinking? There's no food, there's no water, there's not even a quick trip for another 4,000 years. Why did you do this, Moses? And God brings fire down in judgment upon the people. And Moses throws himself down before God, intercedes on behalf of the people, and as he prays for them, the judgment is lifted. That's Numbers 11. You get to Numbers 12, it really starts to get interesting because up to this point, he at least had two people he could count on. That was his brother, Aaron, the high priest, and his sister, Miriam, the prophetess. But in chapter 12, they get their heads together and say, you know, our little brother's kind of full of himself. He, he thinks he's all that. He, he thinks he's got a special relationship with God, but we've got the same DNA as he does. We have just as much of a right to talk directly to God as he does. Who does he think he is? And as they are confronting Moses in rebellion, God says, Moses, step aside. And when Moses looks up, he sees that Miriam is covered from head to toe in leprosy, in judgment for her sin. And what does Aaron do? Aaron says, Moses, old buddy, brother. Oh, we, we know. We know you are God's favorite. You've got a special relationship with him. You can talk to him and God will listen. Pray for us. Intercede for us. And so now Moses is not only having to make intercession for these grumbling, complaining, bellyaching people, he's also having to intercede for the two people who are supposed to be the spiritual leaders in their midst his brother, the high priest, and his sister, who is the prophetess. That's chapter 12. You get to chapter 14, the people of Israel get together and they say, you know what, if we could just stone Moses and Aaron, we'd be able to get them out of the way and go back to Egypt. And God brings judgment down in the form of a plague. The people start dropping like flies, and Moses has to pray for them. And as he prays, the judgment is lifted. Now you get to chapter 16. Chapter 16, you have three Levites by the name of Dathan, Korah, and Abram. They get their heads together and say, you know, Moses and Aaron, they seem to think there's something special about them. But, you know, we're from the same clan as they are. We're just as holy as they are. We have just as much right to lead as they do. And they stir up the people, and as they are rebelling against Moses and Aaron, God says, Moses, get out of the way. And he causes the ground to open up, and the ground swallows up Korah, Dathan, and Abram and their families. And then he brings fire down that consumes 250 of their followers. That happens in verse 35. Six verses later, what do the people do? They say, look what you are responsible for, Moses. This is your fault. We just lost 250 of our best and our brightest. It's all because of you. And so God brings judgment down upon them. Once again, they are dropping like flies. And Moses has to say, Aaron, go get your censer. Move as quickly as you can among the people. Pray for them. Intercede for them. Ask God to lift the judgment. And as they move among the people, the judgment of God is lifted. And then that brings us up to our passage for today. They have, at this point, been out in the wilderness for 40 years. Moses is 120 years old. For 40 years, he has been putting up with this nonstop grumbling, bellyaching, complaining. He's been blamed for everything. And on top of all of that, his sister has just died. 
And now they've run out of water, and the people are fussing again. And Moses goes before the Lord, and he says, what do you want me to do? And God says, call the people together. Speak to the rock that I will show you, and I will cause water to come out of it, just as I have before. And Moses gets up as if to obey. But something's different this time. This time, something happens from the time God speaks to the time that Moses acts. Something happens in the heart of Moses that God finds very unacceptable. Now I have to tell you, up to this point, all of my sympathy is with Moses. When you consider not only all the things he accomplished, but all the things he had to put up with. And then to see that God, at the end of this passage, tells him, you will not enter the promised land. I got to tell you, my sympathy is with him. But there's something just not right when your sympathy is with the creature instead of the creator, isn't there? And so I found myself saying, Lord, I know you are not unjust. I know you are good. I know you don't play favorites. And if, if this doesn't make sense, the problem I know is with me and not with you. And so I try to move past it. But for whatever reason, God kept bringing me back again and again and again to this passage. Until finally, he started to reveal something to me. Something that that I needed to see for my own life. And because I believe enough in provenient grace, I believe that God brought someone here today because they need to hear this for their life. What is it that was going on here? Well, God said to Moses, because you did not honor me as holy among the people. Now, depending on what your translation of the Bible says, it might say, uh, you did not honor me as holy. You did, not, you did not keep my name holy. You did not sanctify my name before the people. The, the word sanctify is the way it would literally translate. And sanctify means quite simply to separate something from common usage, to keep something separated and not allowing the, the common to, to mix into it. So when we sanctify God's name, when we honor God's name as holy, we are letting God be God. We are making a clear distinction that there are some things that God does that we do not. We're saying that there's some things here that belong to God that do not belong to us, and we're also saying that we are not going to impute upon God things that, that really we have to take responsibility for. So with that in mind, let's take a look at what it is that Moses did this day. He calls the people together, and he says, listen, you rebels. Now, that's no great newsflash. They were a bunch of rebels. He had said so, and God was the one who said to tell them, you are a bunch of rebels. But notice what is not taking place here. This time, it's not a matter of Moses saying, you know what God says? God, God feels that you are rebelling against him. No, this time, without any instruction from God, he has taken it upon himself to come in and say, you rebels. Now, let me see if I can say this the right way. You know there are some things that God can say to a person that you can't say? There are some things that God can say to a person that I can't say? Now, we are to be his voice, and when he tells us to speak, we must obey. But I think God's saying here, why don't you let me do the judging here? Why don't you let me decide what to say, when to say, and how to say it to the people who need judgment? In the past, Moses was able to separate himself from that. And when the people bellyached, he was able to say, I'm not your problem. 
I'm simply following instructions from God. If you have a problem, you need to take it up with him. But this time, this time he couldn't, set, he couldn't depersonalize it. This time, taking it upon himself, he looked upon the people and said, you are a bunch of rebels. That's one aspect. There's another thing that happened. So he calls them together. He says, listen, you rebels, must we bring water out of this rock? And I want you to notice that pronoun, we. In other words, listen, are God and I going to have to bring water out of this rock for you again? And you don't have to think about that for very long before you realize that is not the way it's going to work. If there's any water that's going to come out of that rock, Moses won't have anything to do with it. But once again, he has just injected himself into a relationship that is reserved exclusively for God and the people. And then taking his staff, striking the rock twice, again, injecting himself into the situation in a way he was not commanded to do. He just muddied the waters. He, he took on to himself something that was reserved for God. In so doing, he failed to sanctify God's name before the people. And God said, Moses, that's going to cost you. It's going to cost you the promised land. Now, why did he do this? After all these years of being able to depersonalize things, what is it that happened here? Well, I don't think it is a great stretch of the imagination to figure out what's going on. He was irritated. He was angry. Now, we know that anger is a legitimate emotion because we're created in God's image and God gets angry. Uh, the Bible tells us that when God sees those who have take advantage of those who don't have very much, when God sees someone take advantage of widows, when God sees someone take advantage of orphans, God gets angry. In fact, literally in the Hebrew, it says that God's nose gets hot. His nose turns red. It's a very picturesque uh, representation of the anger that God feels. But you know, it takes an incredibly clean heart to have anger comparable to divine anger. Because when God gets angry, it's not about how he is treated. God's anger is about how others are treated. And it's so easy, isn't it, for you and me, when we get angry for, for a little bit of ourselves to get into this. When I feel like I'm not being treated the way that I should. When I feel like I'm not getting the respect that I should. When I feel like I'm not being appreciated the way that I should. It's really, really easy for a little bit of myself to creep into that. And that, that becomes self-pity or stinking thinking. And that is sin. Now, I want to say if there's anybody who has a right to self-pity, it would be Moses. When you look at all that he put up with, all the things he had to endure, and he didn't even ask for this job, and he was just following orders, I want to say if there's anybody who has a right to a little bit of self-pity, it would be Moses. But you know what this passage tells me? It tells me that self-pity is never acceptable to God, not even in a Moses. Because you know what happens when we engage in a pity party, when we start wallowing in self-pity? Well, see, there's only, there's only, if you're in a situation in life that you don't like, that's uncomfortable for you, there are only two possibilities of how you got to where you are. See, you're either walking in the center of God's will or you are not. Now, if you are not walking in the center of God's will and you're in a place in life that is unpleasant, you may be unhappy, but it's not God's fault. 
God's not the one who led you there. If you have been insisting upon directing your own paths, if you cling to this concept that you're the one who's actually in control of your life, if you think you know better than God, and so you have gone somewhere where God is not directed, you may be in a miserable place, but it is not his fault. And so instead of saying, woe is me, then maybe you ought to think about following God. But if your testimony to me today is that you are in the center of God's will, and you find yourself in a place that is uncomfortable, unpleasant, you're dealing with people that you really would rather not, the moment that we say, woe is me, poor me, we automatically and instantly incriminate the God who led us there. Because if we're walking in the center of his will, we go to where he sends us, and he needs you where you are for some reason. I don't pretend to know all the reasons why. can't explain it. But I know this, that the moment we start to say, woe is me, the moment we in, in, engage in this stinking thinking, what we're saying is, God, if only you understood things as well as I do. God, if, if only you could see things as clearly as I do. God, if only, if only you could see how I'm being affected by this. If only you cared about me enough. And God says to Moses, that is sin. And God says to us, that is sin. And it will cost you. It'll cost you the promised land. And it's interesting that God never relented from that. Because if you read through the rest of the Pentateuch, you will see that on a number of occasions, Moses said to God, do you think I could file an appeal on this? Do you think perhaps we could file a motion to reconsider? And God finally said, we will speak no more of this. Climb the mountain that I will show you. Look out. See the promised land in the distance. Look upon it. Gaze at it. But you will never set foot on it. And so Moses died on that mountaintop, and God buried him, having looked at the promised land but never entered it. Now, let me see if I can turn this beast into the wind and land us somewhere. Because I, I wish I knew how to preach this part the way it needs to be preached. I don't want you to feel too bad about Moses. He did not make it to the promised land. Instead, God took him straight to heaven. You see, the promised land is not heaven. The promised land was Canaan. The heaven is the destination for those who make God Lord of their lives. The promised land, the promised land was that place in Moses' life that he hoped for, that he longed for, that God had created him for. It was that thing in this life that, that was the fulfillment of all of the promises all of the expectations. Canaan was the promised land for him. But you know there's a promised land for each of us. There's a promised land that, that God has for us in this life. In this life, a place that he wants to lead us to, where we will find fulfillment, where we will find peace, place where we will realize that we are doing what we were created to do. And the thing that will hold us back is stinking thinking. The thing that will keep us from entering into that promised land is when we 
engage in this pity party, this self-interest, the, 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 the self-pity. When, when we cling so hard to, the, to our concept of the way our lives need to go, that we incriminate God any time that our lives do not go in the direction that we would have. For Moses, it was Canaan. I wonder what it is for you. I wonder if, if your testimony today would be, I've accepted Jesus as Savior. I've experienced the forgiveness of sin. I know I'm going to heaven, but you know what? I still don't know what I'm going to be when I grow up. It just isn't making sense to me right now. I'm in a place right now that just is uncomfortable and unfulfilling. And woe is me. And maybe your testimony would be that I believe with all my heart that I'm going to go to heaven. But I'm miserable today. Woe is me. I deserve better than this. I should have been treated better than this. If only God cared enough about me. To the degree that you cling to that self-pity, that is the degree to which you are not yielding completely to God. There was a, a woman in the court of Louis XIV in France. She was known far and wide for her beauty. And then one day she was afflicted with smallpox. Her face was badly scarred. And a friend said to her, what a shame. What a shame that your beauty would be marred in such a way. And you know what her response was? Praise be to God. One less obstacle to my total devotion to him. Many of you would know the name of Dr. Jerry Porter, retired general superintendent in the Church of the Nazarene. He had a daughter, Amy, who developed cancer while she was a teenager and then died quite young. I remember him saying that there was a point in which she said, God has every right and he has my permission to use my body and my life in any way that he needs to. That is the testimony of somebody who has found the promised land. You see, if you read through the rest of the, of, uh, the Bible, you'll see that once the Israelites entered into the promised land, there were still battles that had to be fought. There were still challenges to overcome, but they had achieved. They had achieved that which God had promised to them. And I'm not saying to you right now that when you enter into the promised land, that you will never encounter any kind of sickness or pain or challenges or anything like that, but I can tell you that once you get to that point of trusting God completely and saying to him, you have every right and you have my permission to use everything about me in any way you want. God, wherever you lead, I'm going to go and I'm going to give you the glory for it. When you get to that point, you've entered the promised land and you will find a peace and a fulfillment and a joy that you cannot experience anywhere else. And so this morning, is that where you are? Have you gone there? Or are you being held back by stinking thinking? Because our Savior, if there was anyone who had the right to cling to the, the right to be treated with respect, it would be our Savior. 
When Jesus came, he is Lord God Almighty. He is in the midst of everything that he has created. And everyone who he has created proclaims that he is the devil. And they have to kill him. And how did Jesus respond? It wasn't with stinking thinking. He said to the Father, I really do not want to go to the cross. I really do not. But your will, not mine, be done. So where are you? This morning, as we celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, we are doing something that Jesus himself instituted. And he said that when we do this, we are to remember him. And as we respond today by coming forward for the Lord's Supper, let us not just remember him generally. Let's remember that Jesus, who had the right to cling to godliness itself, gave all of that up to walk in total obedience to the Father. And why did he do it? For you. For you. To save you and to lead you into the fullness of everything that you were created to do. As the years have passed, a conviction's deepened within me that Christ died to do more for us than most of us ever let him. And he died not only to forgive us of sin and to usher us into heaven, but he died to save us from sin itself and even from stinking thinking. So this morning, as we come forward to celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, Will you let God lead you into that promised land?